M S W Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. Early this week, Ukrainian media reported that Marianne Budinova, the 27-year-old wife of Ukraine's military intelligence chief, was recovering from poisoning. Since poison's been an all-too-familiar weapon of Vladimir Putin's assassins, the blame naturally fell on Moscow. But there's lots more going on in the intelligence world, and including from Qatar, where CIA Director Bill Burns and his Mossad counterpart met to work out hostage negotiations with Hamas to New York, where U.S. agents busted an Indian plot to assassinate an exile who advocates a separate Sikh state in the country. Another Sikh separatist was recently assassinated in Canada. And there's much more. To discuss this, my guest this week is former CIA operations officer Douglas London, who long served in the Middle East and South Asia and did a tour as a station chief in a former Soviet republic. Like most CIA ops officers, of course, the Russians were always on his radar, no matter where he served. And we revisited the story of that still controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline sabotage. Doug London, welcome back to Spy Talk. Always good to see you and talk to you at any time. You're one of the most articulate explainer of all things CIA and intelligence. So we have a lot to cover. We're going to go across the waterfront today. There's lots of going on in the world of spooks from the Hamas-Israel war to assassination attempts by Russia on the wife of Ukraine's military intelligence team and Indian plots to assassinate exile opponents in Canada and here, allegedly, to efforts by friends like, uh, so-called friends like Egypt and Turkey to plant spies here and suborn Americans, even a U.S. senator, to advance their interests. So lots to talk about. Let's start with CIA Director Burns, however, in meeting with his Israeli counterpart, Mossad Chief David Barnea, in Qatar to deal with the hostages issue. The State Department has a special envoy for hostages affairs, Roger Carson's. Why not him? What's a CIA director doing uh, in Qatar negotiating or plotting with uh, Mossad to deal with the uh, hostage issue? Well, great to be back with you, Jeff. It sounds like today is somewhere between speed dating and a, and a quiz show to cover all the broad range of topics <laughs> we have. You know, we, we've talked about it before, Jeff. Uh, we've seen Director Burns travel and, and be used in this special emissary role a great deal more than we've seen other directors. And it's not unusual for CIA directors to play that role, but uh, we've seen Mr. Burns do it uh, prolifically and uh, in, in ever more sensitive missions. And here's one that's front burner right now mm-hmm. with the, the issue between the Israelis and Hamas over hostages and the involvement of a non-NATO allied partner of sorts and Qatar that has special status with the United States playing a mediating role that it has for so many occasions in, in, in the flyer ups. And we should say a special role with Hamas as well. 
It's an odd partnership. They have the Politburo there. Uh, people don't like saying it anymore, but that's how it was established. Hamas's political leadership is called the Politburo, and their leadership is in Qatar. It's been rumored to have been in Turkey at times, and sometimes it may have been. In the past, it was in Jordan. So it's reasonable for the Qataris to be playing this role, and uh, it's been reasonable to see Director Burns out and about. I, I think you get criticisms for one side to say, well, you know, he's got a full-time job. He's supposed to be director of CIA. And the reason they established a director of national intelligence was based on recognition by the 9-11 Commission that the CIA director just had simply too much to do running the agency and also being the president's number one intel advisor and coordinating the community. So um, I think what we see is just a great deal of trust in, in Mr. Burns. I see a, a great deal of confidence that the president has in, in Ambassador Burns. And I think he likes it. I think he likes both jobs. I think he very much likes being the spy master, the director of CIA, but I think he likes his old hat, which is diplomacy. And there's nowhere better to be a diplomat in a sense based on the uh, intrigue that many foreign, particularly autocratic leadership uh, governments have for CIA. They just think it's a special channel. It's certainly more discreet. It doesn't travel with an entourage of press. They don't do press conferences. So I think it's been useful. Again, the other side of the coin is Who's minding the store back at home for the director? Let me ask a, a question that might be on the lips of some people saying, look, we got the head of Mossad there. We got the head of CIA and got there. We got Hamas Politburo there. Uh, why doesn't Mossad and CIA just kill Hamas leaders right there? Well, I, 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 you know, besides the optics of it all, um, optics, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know that that would really be the end of Hamas anyway. This is the political leadership. Uh, certainly, they they impact decision making, ranging from military operations to negotiating positions. But the, the thing is, we see of Israel being committed to destroying Hamas. That's 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 not easy in any way. But it's it's very difficult to attain. Even the United States, after nine eleven and the many years, I think our best position is to say we have strategically defeated Al Qaeda and some of these other terrorist organizations, but we haven't eradicated them. And it's a big leap from going to strategic defeat where they're less of a threat to you to absolute eradication. And I, I think eradicating a group like Hamas, as long as it has popular support within the Palestinian territories, and it certainly does, as long as it has external support materially and financially, and likes of Iran, that might be too ambitious and it might be setting your expectations such that you're, you're doomed to fail, uh, no matter how far you get along. Mm-hmm. You use a, a good term, uh, strategically defeat them, which we have essentially done with, as you noted, with Al Qaeda and ISIS. Um, is this defeating, eradicating Hamas? Uh, any does that have any kind of possibility, considering Hamas's growing popularity, according to reports I'm seeing from the West Bank, anyway? Uh, and what is CIA's role in that? As, as we reported last week, citing on the record and, uh, off the, uh, and on background sources, um, CIA took the ball off, uh, took his eye off the ball with Hamas uh, some years ago, according to our sources, it's sort of subcontract, subcontracting that out to the Israelis because, you know, ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda were our, our game uh, 24-7. So... Um, what role do we have to play in and, and, and do we agree, do you think, that eradicating Hamas is even a, a worthwhile goal? 
Well, I think to begin with, you have to determine whether eradicating Hamas is a realistic possibility. Uh, and and Absolutely. Uh, I think that's improbable, even with our experience with al-Qaeda and ISIS, because uh, Israel can take uh, various military actions and diminish, degrade. It could, you know, eliminate leaders. It could, you know, undermine certain military capabilities. But the destruction of a group means distress, destroying it as an idea. And I think the idea of Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, two of what we would call the rejectionist groups that reject any compromise that accepts Israel as a, as a nation, I think so long as it has the support, which it does, of the Palestinian people, it may not be the best goal. I think if you set your goal on degrading it and reducing its potential as a threat and then increasing both your defenses and your ability to monitor it, that's a tremendous achievement. And if mm-hmm. politically, you're going to advertise, well, your goal is its destruction, then anything less than that, it's going to look like you failed. It's interesting because if you, if you look back just real quick, a quick pivot, mm-hmm. the 2006 war of Hezbollah, it's debatable who won and lost. The Israelis, in a lot of ways, consider it a defeat, the Israelis themselves, mm-hmm. whereas right. militarily, they, they seriously degraded Hezbollah's ability to threaten Israel. And we've not really seen a very aggressive Hezbollah posture towards Israel since that time because Lebanon just doesn't want that sort of war. I mean, its airports Mm -hmm. were bombed and attacked, its infrastructure was ruined. So defining success is important. And I and I think the the government of Israel is is on tenuous ground in what they've been stating out for its position. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as you uh, suggested, uh, Hezbollah is very uh, loath to uh, start something they can't finish very well, and, and Hezbollah's leader Nasrallah, as it was even uh, public, saying if he had known that his uh, uh, aggressive actions toward Israel is going to result in the destruction of southern Lebanon, he wouldn't have done it. So um, he's likely to stay out of this. Uh, but just very quickly. Um, tactically, if we want to be involved in this, and I'm not sure we we do, uh, or how deeply we want to be involved, but what what do we bring to the, what does CIA bring to the table tactically? I think CIA brings tools, collection tools, and techniques, and maybe some experience, which would be of use to the Israelis, as successful as people believe Israeli intelligence has been. Let me stop and say technical tools. Sure, uh, we're talking intercepts, communication equipment. I'm talking all the above without getting into detail, but if you're looking at variously signals, imagery, cyber, um, the United States intelligence community has some very sophisticated tools, many of which we already share with the Israelis, but the Israelis have limited resources. And I think the United States has a position to play if it chooses to provide that sort of support. Mm -hmm. I don't see it, Uh, especially when we've got a lot of other things on our plate, bigger things you might say. I mean, <laughs> the war with Hamas is pretty damn big. But we've got China, we've got Russia, Ukraine, uh, economic issues, global issues. Um, in fact, let's move on for uh, for now. Let's go, let's go to Ukraine, which is the other boiling pot. Um, uh, as I uh, reported yesterday, uh, picking up on uh, Ukrainian uh, media reports, uh, the Russians tried to assassinate the wife of uh, the head of uh, Ukraine's military intelligence. It was poison. This is a favorite tool of the Russians. Um, what do you make of that? Is that just more of the same from the Russians? 
Um, do we have a role to play there uh, in terms of helping the Ukrainians uh, prevent such attacks? Or, I mean, that's that's a real muddle in Ukraine, as you know from its long Soviet in, uh, history. Um, there are spies galore and counter spies and intrigue, betrayals. Uh, what's our hand there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, a couple of really good points you make there. I mean, clearly the Russians are, are, are targeting what it sees as the architects of a, a lot of the attacks that they're dealing with and the challenges they're dealing with on the battle, military battlefield. That's obviously the HRU, the Military Intelligence Service of Ukraine, and Budanov, the, uh, the director, very young director, 37-year-old. Um, clearly the United States wants to do everything to enable the HRU success and enable their defense from attacks. Certainly we see quite publicly the United States is committed to you know, supporting the Ukrainians' cyber defenses from all the various hacking. We've seen uh, you know, literature, both public, official and non-official, about what the U.S. intel community, CIA specifically, has done to help the HRU grow as a service. It's really, in fact, the HRU is a product of Western services that's been grown based on concern over the SBU, which is the civilian intel service. But even the SBU has been doing fairly well for itself based on what we see in public. And we've seen its success predicated on the fact that they sort of dissected out a part of it from the large organization, which was working then with the United States and other Western services, trained up a new generation of officers and provided that group a very compartmented program to shield it. The SBU is a very large organization and had long been riddled by Russian penetrations. That was one of the reasons why the United States was particularly leery. I mean, the SBU treated us as an enemy uh, throughout my career. My career ended in 2019. So even as we were romancing the HRU, and we did particularly from 2014 on, uh, things didn't get better with the SBU until the last couple of years, really, and mostly because they sort of almost broke it down and started over again. So obviously, we're providing training support and, and defenses to the extent we can. Now, traditionally, intelligence agencies, including the one I was involved with a thousand years ago in Vietnam, we have we have bilateral relations with friendly countries, friendly intelligence services, although as the axiom goes, there are no friendly intelligence services. And then we have unilateral operations in which we, we treat the host country as a potential uh, antagonist or potential enemy. So uh, would you assume that those... Uh, that arrangement is uh, being pursued, has been pursued in Ukraine, especially given the reputation of the civilian intelligence service, the SBU, for being riddled by Soviet uh, Russian spies. Well, the, Ukraine is, is clearly a, a non-NATO partner of sorts, even though it doesn't even have that special designation that some of our non-NATO partners have. But there's clearly a relationship, but it's not five eyes, right? It's not a, it's not a country where we're basically, you know, living in the same rooms, looking at all the same intel together and sharing sources and, and what have you. So the United States has long been uh, reportedly spying on its friends. Uh, and, you know, I personally, as a spy, I think that's perfectly reasonable and justifiable because you have to understand what threats you're facing and, and countries have needs more than they have friends. 
So, uh, sure. Well, let's back up and just give a little context to that for just a second, Doug. We, uh, we, we, there was a lot of criticism of CIA for listening on Angela Merkel's phone. Um, and in the past, decades before, uh, spying on the French. And it was, there was a reason for that because we suspected that the French service had been penetrated by the Russians. Uh, we suspected, as it's always been since the end of World War II, that the Russians have penetrated German services. Uh, there were uh, uh, alliances between former Nazi intelligence officers with the CIA as well as with the KGB. Um, so that's why we we uh, spy on friends, and they spy on us. Yeah, I, I think it's fair, and uh, certainly we've certainly seen in Germany the BND penetration, the head of their security. In the last year by the, the Russian FSB, actually their internal service. Right. So I think the difference is the United States is not collecting intelligence on partners in an effort to undermine its partners, destabilize, weaken, or even compete with its partners. It's more like a safety net of sorts that's reasonable for decision making. As you know, the president has to decide uh, who's going to be standing by us when it comes to Ukraine, how far will the French go, how far will the Germans go to at least help their position to know, all right, what sort of influence do we need to exert or what sort of levers can we push to try to keep ourselves all on the same sheet of music? You know, it's philosophically looked at differently by, you know, different perspectives, but I think that's perfectly reasonable and, and not incompatible for what it's worth. Okay, <laughs> for what it's worth. We have to step away for a second, back in a few. Speaking of being on the same page, uh, the Ukrainians have been very aggressive toward the Russians. Uh, hey, they're at war. They, according to Washington Post reporting, and I had Shane Harris, the uh, uh, principal reporter, on a story about Ukraine's sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. Uh, a lot of people don't believe that, by the way, saying that the description of the operation is just not capable from the kind of boat they use to do this operation, not, not big enough, not sturdy enough to do an operation 200, what, 250 uh, feet of water. Um, so, but, um, and there was a suggestion in that story that CIA was sort of like, Jesus, don't tell us, don't give us the details. I mean, we can't be involved in that business. The same with uh, Ukrainian attempts to uh, attack uh, and, and operations to attack Russia and take out Russian officials. So what do you think of that? Well, I mean, Two issues there. One is, you know, did the Ukrainians do it? I, I'm, I'm among those who believe that uh, the Ukrainians absolutely could not have done this, that it was most certainly the Russians. And I've, hmm. I've you know, seen all the reporting. Did the Russians sabotage their own their own? I don't uh, think they see it as that way. I think they see it as the political ramifications and trying to influence Europe as, as, a, as a unified body to be, you know, their, their rival in this case, to, to stand up to them when it came to Ukraine. Uh, so having been involved in, you know, various capers and covert operations dealing with, you know, some such things, I just don't see it as technically feasible. I also don't see it as being an authority that the United States president would have been able to justify, secure, and then receive the support of Congress. At least he would have to notify at the minimum the gang of eight if not the full committees of oversight. And there's just no way this would, one, be kept under wraps, and two, no way they would indulge it and tolerate it. And I've seen uh, President Biden 
as a candidate when I supported his uh, uh, him as an advisor on counterterrorism, and also when he was vice president. It's not the kind of thing he would do, and he would absolutely have to sign off on it. So both from mm-hmm. these these guys are super yeah. So super from practical cautious. capabilities, I don't think the Ukrainians did it, or or any non-state power. I think there's only a couple of countries that could have done it feasibly. And from in terms of how it works, how the covert action process works, there's this just would not have passed the, the giggle test. I just don't see how this would have gone through because it always goes through a process. Mm. And President Biden is nothing about the process. You see it when it comes to counterterrorist drone strikes outside of areas of conflict. He is very deliberate, very about doing things by the book, going through all the steps. There's no way this would have ever gotten through. Oops. No, there's just no way. So I, I, I just don't see it. I, I just don't see the United States having been involved in it just based on the official, even though classified footprint that would be required and the process of authorizing this and all the many players that would have been involved. I also hmm. would say to hmm. your audience that, you know, as much as people think that the CIA sometimes, you know, winks and nods and goes, oh, you know, there's this bad guy there. And if he just disappears, that'd be OK with us. It really doesn't work that way because the chief of station that does that knows he could be going to jail. And no CUS is going to want to go to jail over a wink and a nod. Everything is done with appropriate documentation, with appropriate authorities, and done very officially. So I don't really see us going to the Ukrainians going, mm-hmm. you know, y'all do what you got to do, just don't tell us about it. In fact, it would be quite the opposite. CIA would be out there trying mm-hmm. to collect what are the Ukrainians doing that we don't know about because we don't want to be surprised. We want to be able to steer them away from certain things that are going to cause all of us a great deal of harm. We want to be able to be positioned to exert our influence and at least anticipate the reaction. So rather than, you know, looking the other way, see no evil, hear no evil, it's just the opposite. We're aggressively trying to cultivate that, collect that type of information. This is really interesting. Uh, Putting aside this uh, intriguing question of why a CIA station chief in Kiev would go to jail uh, for giving a wink and a nod uh, to the Ukrainians to carry out this operation. This you're essentially saying this Washington Post story is flatly false, fabricated. Somebody's planting that story. Who's planting that story and why? I think there's there's no doubt that the Russians have been very aggressively planting disinformation for for. In fact, you go back to the Soviet Union, you go back to the days of the Czechists during the Bolsheviks. It's what the Russians do. They rely very heavily on denial and deception. The idea of coming up with narratives and information that protect both the secrets they're trying to, to keep their arms around and to protect their vulnerabilities and then to misdirect their enemies. It's often a compensation for weakness. Mm-hmm. So that they've been doing of that. Course. And we saw it in the election meddling. We certainly see it in its influence campaigns across the globe, so many of which have been exposed. We now actually have official offices in the DNI, the State Department, that that's all they do all day is flag disinformation and flag propaganda that the Russians conveniently would leave some clues or direct journalists of all people to find them. They've been doing that for years. You can read any number of books, particularly on the Cold War, that would document as much. Yeah, uh, I should I, I should, re- I should, have reframed my question. Sure. Let me do it now. So these are skilled reporters at the Washington Post. You know, they didn't, as we say, fall off the turnip truck, truck yesterday. On the other hand, as you point out, uh, and as we all know, the Russians have been really skilled at deception operations since the beginning of the revolution, creating false uh, exile groups and so on. They uh, smashed CIA efforts uh, to penetrate 
Eastern Europe and Russia in the beginning, uh, early years of the Cold War, uh, they're really good at this. They have, seem to have talent for it. So you're saying, you're, you're implying that the uh, Russians offered up sources that, that portraying themselves as a reliable Ukrainians to the Washington. I can't Post. say what was presented to, to Shane Harris and, and other journalists. Well, we know from we, we know we know from the story they they cited Ukrainian officials uh, and others uh, as being sources for their story. You're you're implying that those sources were uh, puppets of the of uh, Russian intelligence. Yeah, but my understanding, and I was not a journalist, and I defer to you on, Jeff, when, when I've spoken to journalists, and I've certainly had some speak to my uh, intel class, you included, good sir, you've been kind enough to do that. The vetting process that journalists take is quite different than a professional human officer, right? The whole asset validation system that we go through pains, which includes testing, it includes basically proof of providing compromising information that is information that would hurt ultimately the organization to which it's sourced and such like that. Where my experience with journalists is they want to see that the person really has the job they claim to have, which would in theory give them access mm -hmm. to that kind of information and that they have corroboration from at least one other source. And that's not the way a, an Intel service does it. We actually want to go to the heart of where does the information come from? What's the chain of acquisition? We want to have first-hand connectivity to the ultimate source of the information and be able to test beyond access. After all, access is not the best definition of security. The Coast bomber who killed seven of my colleagues had fabulous access. There's no doubt he had access to terrorists, but his agenda was to kill U.S. officials and a Jordanian official. So he manipulated. The so the vetting failed. failed and, there. I, and I believe that journalists by nature don't have the same extensive vetting that we do. And there's also a great deal of pressure, clearly, on, on scoops and being the first to report something and the more sensational, the more attention one gets, it would seem. So um, with, without you know, disparaging uh, your journalist colleagues, I have, I have seen kind of a, a long history of problematic vetting of sourcing. And you know, the, some of the earlier articles I remember reading, it was almost as if the Times and the Post were putting their own spin on what they thought their sources were telling them rather than specifically what their sources said. It's a very murky area to work in. I know uh, having you know started out as a case officer myself for a short, very brief time, low level, and then reporting on intelligence for a long time. And I think I know a lot about it, but then there are limitations of what I can know uh, as a journalist. But you pointed out something that's uh, very interesting about journalism, especially investigative reporter. You can get three people to agree about something. That's right. called corroboration. But it may not necessarily right. be true. Is that, that's, that's precisely what, what you're saying. saying. We just don't operate that way. So so to move that, <laughs> move that piece down the board, um, the Russians would have had to provide or manipulate other sources to tell the Washington Post that this was a Ukrainian operation. Because the Post wouldn't re, uh, do that on one source. No, I, but I've seen journalists rely on cutouts, indirect access to sources. Oh, my brother is a Ukrainian mm -hmm. official. He sees this information. He told me. Once again, I, I kind of get back to what we rely on, at least at CIA. We take pride in that most of our intelligence is firsthand. It's from somebody who is directly involved, not someone who claims to know about something from someone else, secondhand or thirdhand. Right. 
We want to see the people that were in the meetings discussing this. We want to see the actual documents from those meetings. We want to be able to verify those documents. We want to have firsthand information, and we want to do that over a period of time. Journalist sources tend to be short-term. They report on one particular article, one particular issue, whatever. We vet our sources over years. So they have long track records against which we could look for consistency or inconsistencies, as opposed to, yeah, this guy really does have a brother who's in the HUR or a cousin or whatever. And we've got two of these guys. So, and again, I'm just speculating. I don't know what they've done, but I've had enough journalists say, yeah, these are the mechanics we certainly use, which is far and away different than at least what the CIA does in terms of vetting. Well, what the CIA tries to do, we should say, maybe succeeds most of the time, but we also know notable failures in betting. Nobody's perfect. Uh, Chinese, according to several reports, and pretty reliable, and and we know because of the arrests of of some of our people, uh, the Chinese just rolled up CIA networks in China. We had uh, our networks in Iran Iran years ago uh, rolled up. Um, So... Uh, they know how to play this. The opposition knows how to play this game. Yeah, but the interesting point there, besides all that, and the Chinese compromise, according to the press, was what, 2013? So that's 10 years ago. Uh, as cyclical it is, particularly the Iranians, it seems there's always a cycle every couple of years they claim to have compromised. People are still spying on China and Iran. So CIA must be doing something right because we continue to have sources, notwithstanding these, these apparent compromises that occur. From time to time. So you're looking at the, so you're saying the batting average is pretty good. No, I'm saying that espionage is risky. And even if you do everything right, things are going to go wrong. And sometimes things go terribly wrong. But mm-hmm. there's a process, there's a system, and we continue to recruit agents and collect intelligence. So something must be going right. <laughs> I know this firsthand myself without going into details about that. Um, well, there's so many other things I wanted to talk about with you, or I plan to talk about with you about the, uh, the alleged uh, reported plot to kill Kim Jong-un, uh, financed by South Korean intelligence. Um, uh, more about these Indian plots here uh, and, and in Canada to assassinate uh, separatists in exile in, Ca- in Canada, the United States. There's so much. I guess we're going to have to just bring you back another time. Oh, my God. <laughs> Makes my head pound. Well, there's never a shortage of, of interesting and sensational activities out there in the intelligence landscape. But we're, we're, we seem to be in a new era now. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm sort of gathering thread on a kind of a big picture piece I want to write down the line about the evolving CIA in this new, uh, you might say, post-counterterrorism era. We're still involved with terrorism, of course. We got the, the Houthi capture of a, uh, of a Israel-linked ship in the Red Sea. Uh, we have Somali pirates capturing, just coincidentally, uh, capturing a, a ship, uh, which they haven't been doing in recent years. So, wow. Well, we'll be back again, Doug. I, I talk to you all the time to get insights and your expertise. Uh, you're very interesting and well-informed. So thanks so much for coming on Spy Talk again. Always my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks. And can't wait to be back again. See you around. Okay, well, that combo sure went sideways. It needs to be said that Doug London concedes he has no hard evidence for his theory of Russian deception on the pipeline sabotage story, nor, I should add, did I press him for it. The joint Washington Post-Spiegel account of Ukrainian sponsorship of the attack tracks, meanwhile, 
with reporting by the New York Times and other news outlets. So that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do check out our spytalk.co news site on Substack, where I and a deep bench of contributing national security writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses. Just Google Spy Talk or use AI and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast was smoothly produced by Kanai and edited by Molly Hawkey for MSW Media. Oh, and by the way, that music you've been hearing, that's the soundtrack for The Bureau, the absolutely compelling French spy thriller that ran for five seasons on Amazon Prime. I loved it. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W Media.